Buckaroo. Holiday. Buckaroo. Holiday. <coughs> Hello, check. <coughs> Hello, check. Hello. Hello, check. Do you own a mobile home 12 or 14 feet wide or... Uh, hello, Jack. Do you own a mobile home 12 or... Hello, Jack! <clears throat> hello, 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 Jack. Hello, Jack. <clears throat> hello, Jack. What do you... Look, look, give me the f***ing mic. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. That's what I get. See, I thought I'd hire a professional to kind of stop the rate of attrition around here. But, uh, all right, forget it. Welcome to the third Buckaroo Holiday, a pre-recorded hobby cast emanating from the dank bowels of schoolyard gents, a backyard shed and semi-casual conclavatory in Bayshore, New York. All the scenic splendor of Islip plus late-night gunfire. My sincere thanks to those of you who actually returned for the second show and are back now. You see, everyone needs something to do. Me, I'm an old guy, a shut-in pretty much, and this is a benign hobby. I mean, without this, what? Maybe I'd watch too much TV, get all head up about politics, maybe post stuff online. No thanks. So before we get underway today, I'll address a few things people have mentioned since the first two shows dropped as Sir Isaac Newton might have put it. Some people, they like all my yapping and personal commentary, while others prefer the whimsical production pieces, like the mashups and all that. By the way, to answer a question I received, the mashups are mine. I make them here from sustainable, locally sourced ingredients, and I serve them up fresh and piping hot to you. So other people, they just want to hear songs, and even there there's disagreement. Should the songs be uniformly obscure? I mean, I do enjoy sharing these little discoveries I've made, lesser-known works that you might enjoy. On the other hand, this being a medium of self-expression, I might want to play something more familiar now and again, just because I like it. Thin Lizzy, maybe. Maybe several Thin Lizzy pieces. Maybe even a solo track from Phil. The possibilities of incorporating Thin Lizzy into the podcast are as numerous as they are exciting. Then there's an issue I've pondered all on my own. Some works, especially what you call your jazz and classical type numbers, they tend to go on a little bit and they demand a certain level of attention that the pop selections don't require. Prague too, it tends to ramble. So should I skip all that? Or do I include it and let you decide to skip it if you're bored? Probably the latter. But I tend to think that an onslaught of more bite-sized items is more suitable to our show in general. That won't always be the case, though, so put that in your wallet and pull it out and look at it sometimes. Nod and say, oh yeah, that's right, and then fold it up and put it back in your wallet and go on with your day. And remember, never push a metaphor past the point of coherence. Yeah, boy! I'll probably continue to resist the thematic approach to shows, even though some themes do suggest themselves. For instance, Christmas is coming, and some people will not want to listen to a Christmas show, for some reason. Another possibility is a show devoted to the memorialization of my own songs. A kind of a museum exhibit of what it was I did. Dusting off the old knick-knack collection, as it were. Maybe the best way to indulge in these marginal ideas is to do special one-off shows, off schedule. So keep that in mind, I might do some of that. Now speaking of the schedule, I had one friend suggest that maybe I should do the show monthly instead of every two weeks. Imagine how flattering that was. Now, the idea is to build anticipation, I guess. I don't know, maybe. But if the more frequent schedule leads to uninspired shows and bored listeners, I guess I'll soon find out. And then we'll knock it on the head. Meantime, let me know what you think. Bear in mind, I'm unable to reply to your online comments because Podbean insists that you use their app, and I don't own a smartphone. So email me or message me on Facebook... And let me know what you think. Or drop by the gents. Hey, I'm here. 
Anyway, you, if you don't feel like communicating these ideas to me, fine. Keep it to yourself. I walk along the street and wonder what to do. I'd like to ease the pain in my troubled brain, but as to how, I have no clue. Should I shout at the people who pass me by? Hey, folks, look at me, I'm no ordinary guy. I had a love and she swore she was mine, but she only loved me when the weather was fine. My mind tells me what to do. Keep it to yourself, tell nobody else. Just how you love the soul, they don't want to know. Keep it to yourself. On a subway train, I hide from the rain and take a seat right next to the door. There's a man with a case, and as I look at his face, I'm sure I've seen him someplace before. He looks up, and I look down, and then we both look away. The train slows down, and my head spins round. It's like a scene from a one act play. Tell nobody else Just how you love so They don't wanna know Keep it to yourself Vanishing inside 
that I will be true. I'll give my heart and soul to you. About living, call Mrs. Jernigan at 526-526-793-436 p.m. A reminder from the Adult FM with this reminder. Hey, that reminds me that you heard the Jelly Beans, Jersey City's own, from 1964 on Red Bird Records. Red Bird was the great label that uh, the Shangri-Las recorded for. It was owned by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. And that song, Baby Be Mine, was written by Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry for these high school friends who enjoyed a very brief moment in the sun, but a memorable one. And then before that, 20 years after the Jelly Beans gave us that one, the Celibate Rifles from Sydney, Australia, gave us their ecologically aware punk tune, Rainforest. And back at the top of all that, it was the Humble Bums, which consisted of Jerry Rafferty and Billy Connolly, who was later a very popular comedian. They had this duo, The Humble Bums, and they recorded that song around about the turn of the 70s. Not sure whether it was 69 or 70, but somewhere in there before uh, Jerry went on to form Steeler's Wheel. They were from Glasgow. Glaswegians, they were. Glaswegians. Let's go. It's the Buckaloo Holiday. Mike, Sport, Murphy. Get it on. Let's get crazy. I've been reading the unexpectedly fascinating life story of Art Clokey, the creator of Gumby and Davy and Goliath, two amazing animated TV shows, just unlike anything else, and uh, two, two things I love dearly and admire a great deal. Now, that theme that you just heard from the 60s TV show, believe it or not, was written by Sneaky Pete Kleinow, who played uh, steel guitar with a lot of people, notably the Flying Burrito Brothers. And he was actually a, an animator for Art Clokey. He worked on Gumby as an animator, aside from writing that theme. And then he went on to work with Graham Parsons and so many others. For me, thinking about Gumby and Davy and Goliath always brings to mind Sundays when I was young. And uh, the thing about Sundays, I can tell you what I think about Sundays, but uh, I, coincidentally, I was reading um, something by Charles Lamb, an essay called The Superannuated Man, and I certainly am one of those. Now, Charles Lamb, British writer, wrote this back in the early 1800s, and his feelings about Sundays tell me that they've never really changed much over the centuries. He says this, it is true I had my Sundays to myself, but Sundays, admirable as the institution of them is for purposes of worship, are for that very reason the very worst adapted for days of unbending and recreation. In particular, there is a gloom for me attendant upon a city Sunday, a weight in the air. Charles Lamb, you got that right. 
I didn't care for the school week, naturally. I hated the school week. And, you know, so Saturday was the day. Let's face it, it's, it's the day. So Sunday, though, it, it should have been another good day. But, you know, they ruined it. You know, you blue laws, you know, going to church. There's all these all these issues. All the homework you were putting off, you got to catch up with. But the worst thing was television. Let's say there's nothing doing. You're just hanging around. You... You're bored. Nobody wants to do anything. None of your friends, you know, all that. Everybody's off being bored on Sunday, too. So you did have shows like Davy and Goliath and Gumby to watch in place of the exciting new shit that was on on Saturday. But the rest of it was just this wasteland of impossible to watch crap. I mean, I didn't like your, your Bowery boys, so they showed that stuff incessantly. And a lot of public affairs programming, you know, meet the press. Worst thing of all was football season. I I just don't get it. I I never got it. I'll never get it. It's just, you know, people, I'm not going to, I'm not one of those sports ball types, you know. You you like it, you like it. That's fine. I just, I I can't comprehend it. Football, I, I, but of course my dad would watch it. While I was playing with my major Matt Mason toys or uh, reading comic books or Mad Magazine and whiling away the hours, there would be this drone in the background of commentary and the noises of sports. And then when there wasn't an actual game on, he'd be watching the NFL Game of the Week shows. And here's the thing. After so many years of exposure to something, you develop a, a I, mean, I do anyway, a, a subconscious on some level, on some level of your mind, some ring of the inferno that is the human brain, there you would develop an affection for this crap. It's associated with youth and family and, pl- you know, nostalgia, it's, it's how that goes. But uh, sometimes this, aside from being merely nostalgic, the, the aesthetic associations are engendered by repeated exposure at a certain age. And I'll give you an example that's a little bizarre. I had a dream not long ago. In this dream, I was at some sort of a party, and I there at the party, I was excited to meet the actor Timothy Carey. He was in a lot of uh, John Cassavetti's movies, and he did a, an amazing picture called The World's Greatest Sinner that he directed and wrote, and Frank Zappa did a score for back in the mid-60s, or early 60s. But here's the thing, I'm having a great time talking to Timothy Carey, I'm excited. And then I realized that sitting next to him is John Facenda. And I forget all about Timothy Carey. I'm getting all fanboyish over John Facenda. This is the guy who narrated the NFL Game of the Week. So he was part of a tight crew that made these films. Uh, They were made by the Sables, father and son. They directed these films. And, uh, you know, they, they had their own style. It actually had an aesthetic credibility to it. And there was scores composed by the likes of Sam Spence, two-balled trombone and percussion-driven scores. I found myself in my adult years uh, actually collecting some of these things on VHS. And I'd watch them, and I still, I didn't like, I still don't like football. Some of them were edited presentations of particular games of note. Others were documentaries about some aspect of the sport. But these were really solid pieces of craftsmanship, and they exert a certain kind of pull for me, and um, go figure. On a sun-gilt day as high, wide, and handsome as the collective aspirations of the huddled masses yearning to breathe the pure air of victory, the men of the hour hit the gridiron itself a green repository of high-flying hopes and cherished ideals. So firm is its grip on the imagination of man that it has become the standard unit of measurement for all things incomprehensibly large and awe-inspiring. That is huge! But now, here in the eternal now that is a football game, the field serves its avowed purpose, not as mere signifier of hugeness, not simply as pastoral object of profound contemplation, nor astroturf carpeted expanse of sheer exalted potentials hitherto undreamed. Nay, now it is and does what it was meant to be and do, to absorb the thundering assault of men like unto none other, godlike titans concerned with one sacred trust, 
one magnificent mission, to tear the other side a new one and leave them bleeding and whimpering like so many compliant cellmates, bitched in perpetuity. And all for that most elusive and desired of objects, a football. What is a football? An inflated bag of pig or a side-stitched dream to be clutched and carried across planes of agony and desire toward the promised dream of glory. It is, to the conflicting participants, as varied in meaning as the very hopes of man itself. It is analgesic and apple tart. It is a torch to bear, a bone to bury, and an object lesson in that which makes man aspire. It is all that he sees, knows, and desires. It is a letter from home, resume, and roadmap. It calls, goads, inspires, teases, taxes, and sometimes betrays. But always, evermore, is, was, and must be a football. Never before was this thesis put to a test as absolute and unforgiving as that to which it was put to on the 34th Chumbo. An epic essay in the magnificence of the sport, not soon to be forgotten, but instead described, discussed, and immortalized as an event of uniqueness like unto no other. Some people say a man is made out of mud. Try telling that to Cleveland wide receiver Matt Torregrossa, who capitalized on his previous season's cumulative gain record of 52,000 yards to turn the line of scrimmage into his own private used car lot. Yea, verily, the contest had decidedly begun.
making a veiled threat a veiled threat during the landing in a small airport today Sunday night clear and cold low in low in the low 30s Monday sunny high in the low 60s
suburb and home right by my side I am a suburb and home boy and I say yo dog to my bleeding guy I hold my baggy enough for them I lay my shaggy enough for them so great for so long suburban homeboy they are doing this takeoff on um Ofei hip hoppers and they didn't try to do some kind of a hip hop pastiche instead they wrote this kind of show tune send that out to sparks partisan john dunbar and then before that we had baxter dury from his 2017 album prince of tears that's ian dury's boy he's the little kid on the cover of new boots and panties and his voice, obviously, is a lot like his dad's, but he's got his own sound. And we heard Below My Hands by Boko Grande, who from Japan. It's a music producer, Kosuke Ishida, and his piano teacher, Yuka Kobayashi. I think Kobayashi plays these piano pieces, and Ishida cuts them up and does the production treatments on them. And I mainly chose that piece because of its brevity. A lot of the other pieces are longer, and I think they benefit from length. They stretch out and develop in interesting ways, and I recommend you check them out if you liked that at all. And we started that rock block with Pastoral by Germaine Taifer. She was one of a group of composers called Les Six, which is French for Los Desistes. <laughs> Uh, you know, you really don't have to worry about how to pronounce things. I've been to several different countries. And when Americans try to pronounce things correctly, they just make fools of themselves. So really don't bother. I don't know. I just... Illustrating the adage that no man is an island, Penn insulated its backfield with a veritable Tyvek house wrap of a swoop and smother play. Thousands wept. Millions cheered. Some came running. Surely this was a football game. What is a football game? The essence of conflict. The pinnacle of human interaction. Here in the pitched tumult of competitive determination, 
two legions of heroic combatants strive to turn a Sunday afternoon into a Valhalla of come blow your horn indomitability and impassioned bravado. Semi-wide silverback Simmons Kimbrough might rightly view his superb performance out of the gate as a feather in his cap, but arrogance would soon prove a blot on his escutcheon as Johnny the Shifferobe Carr held on like grim death to prove the adage, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance on the five, with nine and counting and no do-overs. Meanwhile, with a sickening crunch, Lertzimer dropped Quazo on the ten. Without warning, the Crimson Catastrophe's blistering attack is countered by a three-part invention in D minor by Reuben Professor Goldberg. But whatever his aesthetic agenda, the six-foot-five behemoth couldn't raise his flag in Hoyt's backyard. This colossus would have none of it, and then some. By now, things appeared to be all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows for the gladiators in green. But pride goeth before a fall, as wide receiver Barry Five-Ton Bozak would demonstrate with devastating inarguability. But for how long? And on whose terms? Soon came the answer, and it would resound like the thunderclap of judgment itself. Huh? What? Now I'm going to play a song that's very dear to me. It was written for the show I Do, I Do by Harvey Schmidt and Tom Jones, who also wrote The Fantastics. It was a big hit for Ed Ames, and I love that version, but this is the original stage version with Broadway legends Robert Preston and Mary Martin. It makes me sob uncontrollably sometimes whenever I think about my wife and my kids and how incredibly precious every second I have with them is. I'm not guaranteeing it'll have that effect on you, but here it is anyway. My cup runneth over. Sometimes in the morning when shadows are deep, I lie here beside you, just watching you sleep. And sometimes I whisper what I'm thinking of, my cup runneth over with love. Sometimes in the evening when you do not see, I study the small things you do constantly. I memorize moments that I'm fondest of. My cup runneth over with love. In only a moment we both will be old. We won't even notice the world turning cold. And so With sunlight above, my cup runneth over with love, with love, with love, with love. I'm always surprised when I run across people who seem to enjoy passing harsh judgments on music. I don't mean the kind of arguments you get into for fun, you know. Um, Ew, you like them? Ew, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Ew, you know, that's nothing. But there are a lot of people who take themselves real seriously with this stuff. And I think one of the things that kept me from developing into that kind of a listener 
was a time when I was visiting my friend Tony, who was a recent friend of mine, and I really liked the guy. He was idiosyncratic. And I came over his house, and he was down in the basement shooting pool. And as I come downstairs, what is playing on his hi-fi but the Carpenters? I already didn't think much of the Carpenters, but I had an especial aversion to them because Karen Carpenter was quoted in Circus Magazine saying something insulting about Mott the Hoople. Saying something insulting about Mott the Hoople. You cannot say something insulting about Mott the Hoople. Still, here's my friend Tony listening to this stuff. And I went home later and I thought about it after ragging on him there, of course. And I said, well, yeah, it's music. It's just music. What do I care what she thinks about Mott the Hoople? Tony, I think Tony's a cool guy and he listens to this stuff. So, uh, hmm, let me think about this. It was a signal moment in the opening of my mind, I think. After all, the more stuff you like, the more stuff you enjoy. And I like enjoying stuff. So I eventually came to appreciate the Carpenters. Became a fan, even. So here's something from them. This was before their first album, when they were students at USC. Richard wrote this piece for a concert, which was recorded on one of those vanity pressings from, you know, school concerts. And the song was redone for, the I think, the second Carpenters album. But this is them as callow students doing Crescent Noon. It's actually, I think it's better than their studio version of it a couple of years later. And it goes out to Tony DeCosa.
Playback, you're going to have to start over. I, uh, I had forgotten one button, but I'm ready to go now. Go? Yeah. Chipley Livestock, Chipley, Florida, this coming Saturday, February 8th at 1 p.m., the annual bull sale, 100 service age bulls, Simmental, Simbral, Limousin, and Bramazin. These bulls are hard, pasture-raised, and ready to go to work. If you need good, hard, unpampered, ready-to-work bulls, be there. Touching song with onanistic overtones from the wonderful Jerry Southern. And now this. Repeating the mistakes of his impetuous youth, defensive back Johnson Rusk executed the most controversial play of the game, renouncing his citizenship in a hot diggity dog ziggity boom maneuver, gaining significant yardage in the bargain. But at what cost? Such impertinence was not to be countenanced. Sid, the man who would be talking to Morris, crafted the kind of sack this Minnesota crowd had never seen outside of their hallucinogen-fueled fantasies. Sensing an opening in the opponent's daunting Maginot line of ad hoc offensive scattergrab, coach J.T. Dalhart demanded and receive full compliance from his secret weapon, former Pitt State Antichrist Gilmore Redburn and his Siamese twin Gorman. The duo came on like Sturm und Drang personified, with textbook slash and burn plays of exquisite sadism. Bingo! 
The demoralized Visigoth front-end line could only weep with bitter regret as they watched their carefully crafted agenda. Their carefully constructed... They watched everything collapse like a pile of cans of creamed corn in some dismal supermarket of the collective shoulder-padded soul. Meanwhile, with only ten seconds before the dinner bell, again Lurzimer dropped Quazo on the ten. Of course, the magnificent Slade, doing my favorite of their songs probably, comes from about 1972. Now you thought, now tell me, be honest, you thought that when that urge, that need to rock came over me, and you knew it would, you thought that I'd be playing Thin Lizzy, right? You think I'm so predictable. That's the problem with you. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe it's the problem with us. Come here. Come here. Come on, come on. It's all good. But this one really got away from me. I gotta tell you, time has flown. We're actually over an hour now. So I gotta wrap this up. I had a lot of things planned, but I don't know, maybe too much yapping? I don't know. I don't know. Do you think I should go longer on shows if the mood strikes me? I don't mean like a minute or two, because that's already happened. But, uh, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, you can always stop it and listen to more later. Is it overkill? It, it's probably overkill. I should get the hell out of here. So I'll put this on. This is another one of those bad sound quality things. 
because it's from a TV broadcast. I was really struck by the beauty of the arrangement and, of course, his vocal. Nat King Cole, here. Thanks for taking a buckaroo holiday with me. See you next time. But you mustn't cry No more we stop to see Pretty cherry blossom No more we Meet the tree Looking at the sky Sayonara December 7th, 19th. And a question of psychopath. The Orby has nothing to fear. Bust him up today, huh? Let's go, baby. Raise in hell today, okay? Ultimately, and perhaps inevitably, Coach Schumann Knepp's promised orgy of precision decimation revealed itself as a turd in bad need of polishing. With the big orange defensive line and a seemingly permanent state of who stole the Kishka, Kentucky's 42 Calvin Dietz saw his opening and went for a Katie bar the door passion play on the scrimmage lineage, only to be stopped cold by the formidable gruesome twosome of Ben Hoff and Ricketts, making up for lost time with desperation crunch off for the books. It was all for naught, however, as the ground gained in the first third of the second quarter was grudgingly surrendered by the big blue machine's sudden case of fumbleitis. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you! Not that Barshak and his troops were exactly catching fire, and the game remained scoreless at the three-quarter mark. <laughs> Tollmeyer, possibly regretting the manifold consequences of a spontaneous reach-around he'd inflicted upon Kansas running boy Todd Ben Menningham, ceased his fearless roar and ran home to Mama with 40 minutes still on the clock. In the heat of a low-end insurrection by Agrotown's three wise men of Gotham, someone forgot to tell number 72 Deke Woolsey that the circus had left town. He intercepted a hot potato from Heisman laureate Morgan Soyleminen, as if to the manner born. Thus, with the home crowd agape with impotent, insensate anhedonia, he ran the ball into the very breadbasket of the opponent's defensive redoubt. In the process, he chalked up a five-point honorarium, making a mockery of all that was sacrosanct in this citadel of cocksure championship expectation. Lertzema dropped Quasar on the 10.